That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what happens when the experts get it wrong. Today's podcast features an in-depth assessment of San Onofre's technical problems with an eye to showing activists in other parts of the world wedge issues they can use in their own local battles. Don't worry, it's all in normal English. Engineering whizzes Ace Hoffman and Don Lightling of the DAB safety team will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, January 8th, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. The big news in nuke watchers' minds is... Did Iran have a nuclear accident in Bushehr on the west coast of that country and on the Persian Gulf? That is the site of Iran's first nuclear facility. On January 3rd, the world received word that the entire city of 1.5 million had to be evacuated, with the cover story being that there was a problem with pollution. But previous pollution problems in Bushehr simply had people staying indoors. So while there's no confirmation of a nuclear accident, the situation is highly suspicious. A Chernobyl-type nuclear meltdown in Boucher would not only inflict severe damage in southern Iran, but also in the six oil- and gas-rich Gulf Cooperation Council countries of Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Nuclear radiation in the air and water would disrupt the Strait of Hormuz shipping, the world's most important oil choke point. Oil prices would skyrocket and the world economy would face a hurricane. Radiation fallout would contaminate oil fields and desalination plants that provide fresh water for local inhabitants and would also threaten the U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet, stationed in Bahrain. This story bears close watching. In India, mass public unease at nuclear power development has emerged at Jaitapur, Thousands of protesters were held by police on January 3rd, that's Thursday, as they attempted to surround the site of six planned reactors. The march from surrounding towns to the plant attracted around 2,000 people, according to a Business Standard report. Leaders had intended to surround the site and hand a letter to site managers, but the crowd was stopped and held by police about two kilometers from its destination. Jaitapur is slated to host up to six Arriva EPR units. In Japan, the Asahi Shimbun reports that cleanup crews in Fukushima Prefecture have dumped soil and leaves contaminated with radioactive fallout into rivers. Water sprayed on contaminated buildings has been allowed to drain back into the environment. And supervisors have instructed workers to ignore rules on proper collection and disposal of the radioactive waste. Decontamination work witnessed by a team of Asahi Shinbun reporters shows that contractual rules with the Environment Ministry have been regularly and blatantly ignored, and in some cases could violate environmental laws. A common response of the workers was that the decontamination work could never be completed if they adhered to the strict rules. As one worker said, we were told to clean up only those areas around a measurement site. We will link to this on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Our interviewee from December 18th, Kathy Iwane, is back from Japan, and she reports that the test burning of radioactive debris that went on in Osaka in November is slated to be continued. 
The city now plans to burn the debris until spring of 2014 in Osaka. This is going to start next month, February. Many protesters and anti-nuclear activists are being unlawfully detained and arrested. Kathy says it is not a free environment in which to express one's disdain with public policy in southwest Japan now. So many stay home, especially the women who are usually on the front lines of this movement. The newest news is that Osaka has made a deal, signed, sealed, and delivered, and money may have already changed hands regarding sending debris to be burned in Osaka. Now a group of five lawyers and about 50 people have set up office headquarters to fight this in a court of law. This could be the beginning to saving the food supply, at least a little bit, in the south of Japan. With Kathy's help, we will keep you posted. Num Nuts of the Week Award! This is insane, and it just continues Japan's genocidal policy towards its own people. This story translated by XSKF. The Japanese government will aim to pass legislation to promote the sale of Fukushima produce and goods in order to clearly show to the public how the national government stands on the issue of, quote, baseless rumor damages, end quote. The legislation would designate Fukushima Prefecture as the special zone, yeah, it's special, all right, and enable the national government to order retailers to sell locally produced goods and to extend preferential treatment to retailers who sell such goods in the storefronts. No word as to whether this legislation is intended for retailers only in Fukushima or retailers throughout Japan. To understand exactly what they're discussing, in a related story, it's been found that radioactive cesium has been found in 25 of 26 food samples from Fukushima Prefecture. This comes from a study aimed to provide an urgent estimate of the dietary exposure of adult residents recruited from three areas in Japan to cesium-134, cesium-137, and, for purposes of comparison, natural potassium. Continuing with health-related news... Turkey has begun testing all food from Japan for radiation. As of January 1, 2013, the tests will cover all Japanese products sent to Turkey after March 11, 2011. That is because state imports from Japan are suspected of being radioactively contaminated. Compare this to the U.S., where nothing from Japan is being tested for radiation. People living near a former uranium ore processing facility in Ohio are experiencing a higher-than-average rate of lupus, according to a new study conducted by scientists at the University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Lupus is a chronic inflammatory disease that can affect the skin, joints, kidneys, lungs, nervous system, and other organs of the body. The underlying causes of lupus are unknown, but it is usually more common in women of childbearing age. Links to the study? Check our website. And here's evil. In 1995, the Director General of the World Health Organization tried to inform on the human toll of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster by organizing an international conference with 700 experts and physicians in Geneva. This initiative was blocked by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Thanks to the IAEA, the results were never published. That, of course, is because the truth of the consequences of Chernobyl would have been a major blow to the promotion of the nuclear industry, and the pro-nuclear IAEA would have none of that. By disregarding and disallowing this information from being disseminated further, the truth was hidden from citizens everywhere around the world. 
Here in the U.S., anti-nuclear advocates and concerned citizens have asked the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to revise regulations and take action against Oyster Creek Generating Station in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. Attorney Richard Webster of Public Justice submitted a petition on behalf of Beyond Nuclear, the New Jersey Environmental Federation, and Grandmothers, Mothers, and More for Energy Safety. During Hurricane Sandy, the intake canal of Oyster Creek was inches away from flooding pumps key to the cooling system, according to the petition. Also, 33 of 43 emergency sirens were inoperable, which Oyster Creek failed to report in a timely manner. Pre-Sandy evacuation plans failed to address the post-Sandy reality. The superstorm proved the design basis, how strong a storm the plant can withstand, is now deemed inadequate. The NRC denied the request for immediate action because, quote, there were no immediate, one of their favorite words, immediate, significant, here they are with immediate, there were no immediate safety concerns at Oyster Creek or to the health and safety of the public. FEMA concluded that off-site emergency response was adequate. Currently, only one siren at Oyster Creek is operable. A little bit of good news. The Private Fuel Storage Limited Liability Corporation has given up on its plans to turn the tiny Skull Valley Goshutes Indian Reservation in Utah into a parking lot dump for commercial high-level radioactive waste. The plan was for 40,000 metric tons of irradiated nuclear fuel to be, quote-unquote, temporarily stored, meaning for 20 to 40 years, in 4,000 dry casks on the Skull Valley Koshutes Reservation. Ultimate plan was to transfer the waste to the Yucca Mountain dump, and we all know what happened to Yucca Mountain. It was such a dump we couldn't use it. When that proposal was canceled in 2009, they tried to put a large measure of this waste on the reservation. This is a huge win for First Nations people here in the United States. A little bittersweet news. After four and a half years and 197 programs, Dr. Helen Caldecott's radio show, If You Love This Planet, ended with broadcast of its last new episode in the week ending December 28, 2012. Dr. Caldecott has ended that radio show to concentrate on other new initiatives of the Helen Caldecott Foundation. This includes an international symposium to be held at the New York Academy of Medicine, March 11th and 12th this year, entitled The Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima. She's also going to write a new book, which she hopes will be published in 2014. Safe journey to you on all your new ventures, Dr. Helen, and of course, we will link to your site. And here's another frustrating, curious story from Southern California. Nuclear safety regulators have dismissed objections to a non-disclosure agreement that seals from public view some documents related to the faulty steam generators at the San Onofre nuclear plant, as well as an application to restart the facility. Open government activist Ray Lutz filed the objections to an agreement made early in December between plant operator Southern California Edison and Friends of the Earth. This international environmental and nuclear watchdog group signed off on a protective order that restricts information deemed proprietary by Edison and its third-party vendors, contractors, and consultants. Lutz, filing on behalf of Citizens Oversight Project, argued that Edison needs to publicly disclose information unless it can, quote, show that actual and not hypothetical injury will occur. Lutz went on to say, I would like to have them at least list the documents that are being kept in confidentiality and say why. The best approach is to be completely open. What they are doing is the exact opposite. 
Nuclear Hot Seat has sent a request to Friends of the Earth for clarification on their curious alliance with the NRC. If we receive the information in time for next week's podcast, we will include it on that show. For today's interview, we're having tech talk about reactors with the DAB safety team. But as I said before, don't panic. I promise you this is going to be in normal English, and these guys are great at explaining exactly what's going on in language we can all understand. In addition, they point out how some of the things they have discovered about San Onofre can empower activists around the country and the world so that they can use this information to help formulate their battle strategies. Ace Hoffman is a 40-year veteran anti-nuclear activist and author of the Cornerstone 2008 book about the nuclear industry, The Code Killers, which is available as a free download from his website, acehoffman.org. Don Lightling is an engineer with a background in material science R&D, environmental fatigue testing of space-related mechanisms for Skylab, and a manager of laboratories in physics, radiation technology, and a whole bunch more. As a public media expert and archivist, Don is focused on exposing scientific double-talk and the prevention of future environmental disasters through understandable, factual education on technical information related to the nuclear industry. Together, they form the core of the DAB safety team, along with a battery, no pun intended, except maybe it is, a battery of safety-conscious San Onofre insiders and industry experts from around the world who wish to remain anonymous. These volunteers assist the DAB safety team by sharing knowledge, opinions, and insight, but all reports from DAB are their responsibility alone. Don, Ace, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, Glory. Thanks for inviting us. Don, why were the reactors shut down? Let's give people the background on this. At the end of January 2000. 12, a leak was discovered in Unit 3, that's steam generator Unit 3, and the reactor was shut down because that leak was a radioactive leak. It vented radiation to the atmosphere. Unit 3 is the one that where the leak was discovered. And at the time the leak was discovered in Unit 3, Unit 2 was shut down, and it was in the middle of a refueling period. So it was not in operation. Why did they remain shut down? Unit 3 had a, as I said, had a radioactive leak in one of the steam generator tubes. When they went in and tested it later after everything cooled down, they discovered not one but eight tubes failed called in situ testing, which basically means they tested it in place. And they put it under pressure. They failed. And it was the first time in any nuclear reactor in America where so many tubes failed at the same time. And each one of those tubes, by failing, could put us at risk of yet more radioactive material leaking into the environment. There was a, there's an example of a reactor in Japan uh, that had one tube fail while the thing was running, and it vented so much radioactivity that it caused a level three and there's only seven levels, a level three nuclear incident in Japan, and it was the first time that something terrible like this happened in Japan, and it shattered the myth that nuclear is 100% safe, because here one tube failed, and there's many, many thousands of tubes in each steam generator. One tube failed, and when it did, it caused this big problem there. And this predates Fukushima, correct? Uh, Yes, ma'am, it sure does. 
what has happened since that initial shutdown, both for refueling and the discovery of the steam generator pipes being corrupted in Unit 3? Well, the other unit was shut down at the time, Unit 2, that's the other operating unit for a reactor pressure vessel head replacement and for refueling. And so they had supposedly looked at Unit 2's new steam generators to see if they were okay and determined that they were okay. But, of course, after Unit 3 sprung a leak, uh, they went back and looked a little harder at Unit 2, and they found thousands of wear spots on Unit 2's steam generator tubes and thousands of wear spots on Unit 3's steam generator tubes. And so then the... the uh, process began as to what exactly went wrong, and they're still in that process right now, a year later. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment. Can't they just go in and strip out the broken pipes and put them back in uh, with fresh ones, like you wouldn't say a plumbing problem? Oh, not even. They can't even remove them. The steam generator pipes are stuck in the middle of the steam generator. There's 10,000 of them, and you can't just remove one. So instead, what they have to do is stake them and plug them, and sometimes both and sometimes only uh, plugging them. And they had to do that to hundreds of tubes in Unit 3 and hundreds of tubes in Unit 2. But even with all those tubes that are plugged and staked, there's uh, every reason to question whether or not the unit can be restarted without it rattling itself apart again, because both units were rattling themselves apart. And anyways, an operating reactor is hardly the worst-case scenario of what a reactor has to be able to protect itself against. I mean, it's possible for the uh, main steam line to break, and in which case there's an enormous increase in the flow and in the pressure differential with one side to the other, and it has to be prepared for that. With San Onofre's tubes barely even able to run, it's... It's just an engineering impossibility to think that they're ready to handle a serious design basis accident, as they call it. These were new steam generators and a new design as well, weren't they? Yeah, they had to, yeah. Fit, the, uh, they had to fit the same amount of heat transfer into the same space, but because they went to a new alloy, more ductile and better alloy that is more was more likely the last 60 years, uh, but they had to cram more of this new alloy into the same space in order to get the same heat transfer. So they added hundreds of tubes. They removed a space cylinder. They increased the length of the tubes by something like eight inches, and they packed the tubes closer together. Now, this caused a problem, which was that well, it would have been a good problem for them to have if only it had managed to stay in control, which they got too much steam out of the thing. And that meant that there wasn't much water up at the top of the, of the U-tube. And so with not much water there and a lot of steam rushing by, the tube started to vibrate in unison. And when they do that, it's nothing that will stop them except you know, the edge of the steam generator or something else that they bang into. And so what happened is they banged into each other until they broke. This is no way to run a reactor. This sounds like it was a design change, which are two words that make, some of the top people at Southern California Edison literally twitch. I've seen them twitch when these words were brought up in front of when the NRC was questioning them. What about SCE's plans or their proposed plans to restart the generator at 70% power and run it for a period of five months just to see what would happen? They're kind of pulling the fast one over us all. I was thinking that they're just going to be jogging instead of running full tilt. They're not. They're going to be running pretty close to full tilt in every way, except for the flow rate. 
So if something were to go wrong, they're going to have to be able to get rid of all that heat and uh, all that nuclear byproducts they are going to be building up inside of these things. And in terms of running it for five months like that, they are supposed to be able to run for 22 months. 22 months before they do some kind of uh, maintenance on it? Yeah, they do a refueling every every 22 months. In light of what seems to be flawed generators and also a flawed plan to get the generators back online, what has the NRC been doing? Don, do you have some insights on that? I think uh, in the beginning, everybody was surprised that there was a leak. Once that leak happened, then Region 4, which is in charge of our reactor here on the West Coast. That's NRC Region 4. Correct. They sent an inspection team to San Onofre to get a better look, better handle on what's going on there. And the inspection team did a couple things. One thing was they determined that SCE did not do anything wrong, in their opinion, when they asked for a like-for-like exchange of the new steam generator to replace the old steam generators. They were saying that they were just getting a replacement part that they were sticking in to take the place of the first one, even though it sounds like there had been a lot of changes to it. Exactly. Let's use an analogy. Let's say you have a car, and your engine, for whatever reason, is not working well. So you go to the dealership, and you say you want to buy another engine, the same engine your car came in, but newer. They take it out, they put it in, everything's okay, and away you go. That would be a like-for-like exchange. What Edison did was they made a huge number of changes, and but they told the NRC that they were doing a like-for-like exchange. And the reason they did that is that if they told the NRC they were making modifications to the original steam generators, then the NRC would automatically kick in a design review process that is very lengthy, very detailed, and when you're talking time, you're talking loss of money in generation time. So Edison, in my opinion, sort of pulled one over on the NRC by telling them they were doing a like-for-like -like exchange when they really were not. Now, fast forward a little bit. Edison designed these new steam generators, they called replacement steam generators, in-house. They did it themselves. And then they went to Mitsubishi Heavy Industry, MHI, the initials they use, and they got them to build these generators to their specifications, which MHI did. Edison went to Japan, inspected them, followed the process all along, and bragged in national uh, newsprint that these 21st century steam generators were going to save the public a billion dollars and, you know, last the best thing since toast. But what happened is once they put these things in and they started running them, they started running into problems. And they were problems that uh, people hadn't seen before. And as Ace had mentioned, when they packed more steam generator tubes in the same container, they ran into engineering problems where the tubes inside the steam generator start wiggling and shaking and actually hitting each other. Imagine tubes hitting each other. These tubes are about the size of a penny, and they're about as thick, the wall thickness from inside to outside, as a credit card, a thin credit card. So they can't take a lot of abuse, physical abuse. And if these tubes start leaking, then the hot radioactive core coolant 
inside the tube can leak outside the tube and mix with the steam water. And when that happens, that radioactive vapor can vent to the environment. That's why it's such a big deal. It sounds like the NRC was asleep at the switch in the beginning and was just rubber stamping, as it usually does, and letting Southern California Edison get away with whatever they wanted to. But they've been doing some more hearings, some more examinations in the recent past, and just after Christmas, they came up with a real shocker. Can you talk about what the NRC's response was after Edison came up with their plan and tried to put it across? There's a part of the NRC which is called the NRR, which is the NRC's Office of Nuclear Reactor Regulations. I like to think of these people as the highly technical part of the NRC, not day-to-day -day use, but how things are designed and built. They came out and they asked Edison to go to Washington, D.C. for a meeting in Rockville, Maryland. That's where the headquarters of the NRC is. It's just outside Washington, D.C. They had a very technical review of questions that they asked Edison to provide answers for. Then the NRR personnel responded to that, and basically they came back with even more really tough questions for Edison, a number of which that many people don't feel that Edison will be able to answer satisfactorily in that the NRC has already told Edison you cannot restart these steam generators, restart the reactor from the, the condition it's in right now unless we give you the okay. They sort of took away the keys to the family car, so to speak. And if they can't get the okay from the NRC to restart, then Edison can't restart. That's the bottom line. And these questions were very tough questions. They basically said part of your license is that these reactors can be operated at 100% power and do so safely without any leaks. So we want you to show us how you can prove that's going to happen. And in a number of cases, Edison came up with facts and studies and opinions from outside experts that conflicted with each other. And as we pointed out in a number of our papers... Which I will be linking to at, from the Nuclear Hot Seat site. There's just a number of things that don't add up. You know, if you ask three people, three experts for three opinions about something, you're hoping they're all going to say pretty much the same thing. But the outside expert all left a lot of things up in the air. One said, well, we didn't have all the information, so we're basing this on educated guess in so many words. Another one said, we think it'll do this. Another one said, well, uh, knowing what we know, uh, we believe. And when you're talking about nuclear problems, it's not like having a flat tire on the side of a road next to a, a gas station. If these tubes start to leak in a big way, it could be disastrous for Southern California and even the United States. And that's why the nuclear reactor regulation people are now totally involved in what's going on. It sounds like with the engineers asking the questions that politics is at least for the time being not the primary driving force in the relationship between SCE and the NRC. Back in December, we got word that Edison was so confident of a restart that they had scheduled their workers to show up as soon
assuming a restart as of February 2nd. Do we have any further information about that timeline with Edison? Well, the Edison's been setting a date ever since the reactor went down. Every couple of months, they set forward a new date. And sometimes they had to backtrack and say, no, no, that was just a procedural date. It didn't mean anything. I think the latest one is maybe March 5th. So, uh, you know, the idea that they could possibly restart at March 5th, and that date was uh, rumored prior to the NRC letter of December 26th, the now famous NRC letter. So do we have any kind of a timeline as to how this might proceed, hoping, of course, that the NRC will make the terms such that it's shut down for good? I don't think the NRC is going to do that. I think they're really trying to twist SCE's arm to fish or cut bait on this, recognize that this is an un, unrestartable reactor unless you were to replace the steam generators with a hitherto undesigned design. And then the uh, Southern California Edison also has to weather through the California Public Utilities Commission special investigation scheduled to go on for 18 months. Uh, the initial hearing is actually tomorrow. So Edison's under a huge number of different microscopes, and they're really getting burned by this solar power that's coming in. Namely, photovoltaics are getting so cheap that this whole conversation is becoming moot from an economic point of view, which is, you know, the bottom line. Is, is this thing worth restarting even if it could be done? I'll wager that it, and many other people would wager that photovoltaics, uh, Harvey Wasserman is saying, is going to be the biggest industry ever so far in history. Yeah, do you have anything to add to that? I think that Edison's in a tough place right now. On one hand, they've been telling everybody since day one, we have to have San Onofre. It provides what they call base load to Southern California. Without San Onofre, we're all doomed energy-wise. On the other side of the coin, we haven't used San Onofre in a long time. We even got through all of last summer, no problem at all. And every day that goes by, other forms of energy, more rooftop solar is being added, more other types of energy are being brought online. Every day that goes by is another day where their insistence that they have to have San Onofre operating is really just smoke and mirrors. That's one thing. Another thing is I think that they're either going to have to shut San Onofre down or they're going to have to keep it shut down long enough that they can open up both steam generators. These steam generators are massive. Each steam generator is about 640 tons, so it's not just something that they can jack up and move around like changing a tire. And they're going to have to take out all the guts, and they're going to have to try to rebuild them in place. And to do that, they're going to have a huge amount of people watching because the NRC, the NRR, and everybody else is going to want to know every single detail about this overhaul slash rebuild, if it can happen. Last time when they rebuilt these things, they did not do it here in the U.S. They were actually built in Japan by Mitsubishi and uh, then shipped over here and then installed. You know, no easy process. Edison has their work cut out for them, but one thing I think is really for sure is that if they were to start these up again, no matter what power, 70%, 100%, if we had a big problem, big earthquake, a main steam line break, which happens on plants, you know, it's like an industrial accident. They just happen or a combination of those things, we can have a meltdown situation, which nobody even wants to talk about. And I think that's the key point to remember. 
why do we need to take the chance to do some kind of engineering test, which only is going to benefit Edison, not the rest of us? Because remember, all the ratepayers in Southern California are showing out $54 million a month to Edison right now. In fact, Edison's being investigated by the California Public Utilities Commission about the costing of these uh, replacement steam generators, and there's lots of talk about the CPUC, that's the California Public Utilities Commission, going back in time and actually ordering Edison to give a rebate out of what people have paid in. And if that happens, then this billion dollars or $1.3 billion or whatever it adds up to, you know, on any given day plus interest, is going to come out of Edison shareholders' profits, which have been at record heights the last number of years. So I think that's the situation Edison is in at the moment. You know, people listen to Nuclear Hot Seat around the country and literally around the world. So I'm wondering if there are any lessons that we have learned and are learning about San Onofre that are applicable to other activists around the world who are fighting against nuclear reactors. One thing that San Onofre has proved beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the industry concept, the belief, the core belief of the nuclear industry is that if there's a problem with a steam generator, if it's really, really, really bad, a single steam generator tube will fail, break, rupture. In, in unit number three, they, they found eight steam generator tubes that failed institute pressure testing. And in unit two, they weren't even looking at it. They, they had one tube that was discovered with 90% wall wear. In other words, 90% of the thickness of the tube wall was gone. And they said they tested that. And it, it did not fail pressure testing. But between you and me, I would have liked to have been there when they were doing that pressure testing because there's all sorts of ways to do testing, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So now it seems for the entire industry globally is that they're going to have to reexamine their core belief that only one steam generator tube can fail at a time. And because of the way these things are operated and the design, if a single tube fails in a big way, not only does it fail itself, but in doing so, it can take out the tubes next to it because they all start to shake and vibrate and move around and wear against their supporting structure. And if that happens, you can get what's called a cascade of tube failures where one causes two, two causes six, six causes 12. And if something like that were to happen, in the first five or six minutes, pretty much before the control room realizes they've got a gigantic problem, all the radioactive core coolant in the main reactor can travel through these lines and vent to the outside atmosphere. And if that happens, one, you get a huge radioactive event for the people that live nearby to deal with. And also, if the core starts losing massive amounts of water, core coolant, then the core could suffer a meltdown, and we know from Fujishima what that's like. So they're playing with uh, nuclear fire here, and I would suggest to any uh, activist anywhere in the world what you need to do is you need to find out how they specifically, engineering-wise, how they inspect these steam generator tubes, what technology do they use? There's like five, six different types. Some of them are sort of, you know, somebody looks at something and, and guesses how good it is. They have others that are very specific now 
the best being it will examine the inside and the outside of every single tube and look for microscopic fatigue cracks. They may start out microscopic, but under severe situations, they can go from microscopic to failure very quickly. And so that, I think, is going to be the reason that many steam generators globally get taken out of service. A part of this interview was lost to technical problems, but Ace wanted me to let you know that no matter when San Onofre goes permanently offline, the work of the DAB safety team will continue. They seek to assist those inside nuclear reactors who know the facts and want to get them out, but need to preserve their anonymity. According to Ace, and I quote, almost every reactor has a problem that should get it shut down. If we can find the people who know what the problem is, the DAB safety team would like to assist them in getting it shut down. That's our goal, to expose these kinds of problems while keeping our sources safe. A link to the DAB safety team website and a series of reports and explanations that are really clear. Go to decommission.sananofre.com and click on the DAB safety team documents. To email them, use r. Hoffman, that's R-H-O-F like Frank, F like Frank, M-A-N, at animatedsoftware.com, or CAPTDDD, that's C-A-P-T like Captain, D-D-D like Don Don Don, at gmail.com. Here's today's final thought. It's a poem from the book Letters from Children in Fukushima Prefecture, When Will Radiation Be Gone?, It was published in February of 2012 by Asahi Shinbun Publications, Incorporated. The book is partly the result of efforts by Kids Voice, a private group of parents of children who have left the prefecture, and supporters of these parents and children. Here's the poem. Will I give birth to a normal child? How long will I live? Why do I have to change schools? Only me. Every day I am going to school with long sleeves, long pants, a mask, and a hat, even on very hot days. I also cannot play outside. I cannot open the windows, too, as well as last year. I am transferring from second semester. Seven days left to attend this school. I do not like it, and I am very sad. My dream is quite different from last year. I want to eliminate radioactivity. I want to give birth to a normal child. So do we all. That's why we keep fighting. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 8, 2013. Material for this podcast was gathered from enenews.com. Fukushima Diary, written by Yori Mochizuki, XSKF, FrontPageMagazine.com, The New York Times Op Editorial Page, Asahi Shinbun, World Bulletin, World Nuclear News, NJPatch.com, UTSanDiego.com, Beyond Nuclear, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com, Click on the blog page. We can also be found on two Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages. Be sure to friend us. And on iTunes podcasts. Share us. Link to us. Get the word out and keep it moving. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us as the resource we are. 
And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. <laughs>